But we're going to look at a large chunk of text this morning, Isaiah chapter 7, all the way to Isaiah 9, verse 8. Life is full of decisions, isn't it? Every day, you and I have to make decisions. For some of you, this is a paralyzing reality. You show up to the restaurant, and you stare, and you deliberate, and making a decision is the hardest thing that you have to do. That's why you need to just go to Chick-fil-A say, I'll have the chicken. Makes life really easy for those of you who get paralysis analysis. But every day we're making decisions. What am I going to wear? Why am I going to wear that? Where am I going to go? When I meet with people, what am I going to say? What am I going to ask? Of course, those mundane decisions give way to much larger decisions. Who am I going to marry, if anybody? What career am I going to embark upon? Should we buy this house or not buy that house? Should we buy that car, not buy that car? Should I retire early or keep working? These are decisions that are sometimes hard to make because they impact not just our own lives, but oftentimes the lives of those around us. But there's no greater decision that any of us have ever made than the moment where we stood and had to make a decision between trusting in ourselves and our own sufficiency or trusting in the Word of God fulfilled in Christ. Are we going to continue to trust ourselves or are we going to trust God? If you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because you had reached at some point that fork in the road and you made a decision by God's grace. As for me and for my house, we will trust the Lord. There is a drawing of a line in the sand, so to speak, of whose team you're going to be on, of whose side you're on, of who you're going to look to and who you're going to trust, even in times of, of darkness and of trial. There may be some of you here today who you've been faced with that decision, and by God's grace, He's given you an opportunity to face down that decision more than one time, and He will give you another one this morning. Will you continue to trust in yourself, in your own wisdom, in your own strength, in your own brilliance, or will you trust me? This is where we find Ahaz in Isaiah 7. The prophet Isaiah, called by God, is sent to Ahaz, a wicked king, and he's going to tell him in chapter 7 that you have a choice to make. And we're going to see God moving toward Ahaz with great grace and patience. In spite of Ahaz's sin and wickedness, giving him an opportunity to, to make a decision. Are you going to trust in yourself, in your own brilliance, or are you going to trust in me? By faith, according to the word that Isaiah, my prophet, is speaking to you. We find ourselves often, aren't we, faced with the same kind of decisions that Ahaz is going to have to make in this chapter. And that's why we need to cling to this big idea in this text. This big idea of Isaiah 7 all the way to Isaiah 9. That when given the choice between trusting God and trusting yourself, trust God. He wins in the end. And when you're given the choice between trusting God and trusting yourself, trust God. He wins in the end. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. We see context is being set for us in verses 1 and 2. See there in the beginning, in the days of Ahaz, we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 that King Uzziah had just died. Now his grandson, two generations later, is sitting on the throne of Judah. So we're in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And during this time, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. 
but could not mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is Israel, well, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. Let me kind of paint a little picture of where we are. After the death of King Solomon, that is King David's son, after the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. There was a civil war. You had a northern kingdom, that is called Israel from then on, and you had a southern kingdom named Judah. In the northern kingdom, Samaria is the capital city. Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah. Isaiah 7 puts us about 200 years into this massive dysfunction. Uzziah has died, and his grandson Ahaz is on the throne, and he's a wicked king. The Assyrian Empire, up to the east of the Fertile Crescent, is rising in power. Its influence, through sheer brutality, is spreading all throughout the land. And these little kingdoms of Palestine, of Syria, and of Israel, that is Ephraim, and especially of Judah, are no match for this new bully in town. So Israel joins up with Syria. They form an alliance, and they want Judah to join. After all, we're stronger together than we are separate. But Ahaz is hesitant to do it. He doesn't want to do it. And so the northern alliance of Syria and Israel is threatening to attack Judah. We're going to come down hard on you if you're not going to align with us, and we're going to remove Ahaz from the throne, and we're going to replace him with a puppet king that we can make do whatever we want to do. That is what Ahaz is facing. Political tension, warfare on the boundaries, Assyria is a growing military power and it's spreading. And then you have Israel and Syria conspiring against you. What is he going to do? But we also see there in verse 1 that God's covenant with, quote, the house of David, there in verse 2, still stands. And that is why that they, speaking of Syria and Israel, could not yet mount an attack against Jerusalem. God was guarding his people at this time. And so he sends Isaiah, and he wants, and Isaiah wants Ahaz to know from the very beginning that the threat is going to vanish. It seems really big. It seems really insurmountable. But I want to let you know that God has told me, and I'm telling you, that it will not stand, they will not prevail. There's no need to panic. God is with his people. So in verses 3 through 7, God gives Ahaz a choice. Isaiah goes to him and he's accompanied with his son, Shear, Jashub. If you look down in the margins of some of your Bibles, you can see what that means, that it is a remnant is going to return. And so God tells Isaiah to go and to meet up with Ahaz and bring your son, introduce him. It would be like us introducing our sons or our daughters to a perhaps a non-Christian friend and going, this is my son, John 3.16. Oh, really? That's what you named him? Yeah, that's what you named him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that for whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Well, it's kind of the same way. Introduce your son and let him know by his name that God is faithful, that a remnant is going to remain and return. Jerusalem is not yet going to fall. God will be faithful to his people. This is the message that Isaiah has come, and so he gives a command in verse 4. He says, say to him, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, do not let your heart be faint. Why? Because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands that is resident in Syria, they will not stand. In other words, God is telling Ahaz through Isaiah, stay calm because they're nothing more than two cigarette butts. They can't hurt you. Well, then in verse 7 and 8, God gives a promise. He's just given Ahaz a choice. Don't fear or fear. Trust me or trust yourself. But he makes a promise in verse 7 and 8. We see that Syria and Israel are conspiring to terrify and to conquer. We see that in verse 6. 
But God says in verse 7, it shall not stand and none of this is going to come to pass. So the question, the tension at the end of verses 7 and 8 is, is Ahaz going to trust God? Is Ahaz going to treat God as God? Because God tells Ahaz ultimately what's at stake at the end of verse 9. He says, if you are not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. Either you trust me and you will be strong in me, or you will not trust me and it will lead to your downfall. It's going to take you out. Are you going to trust me or are you not? You're either going to live by faith or you won't live at all. If you want my support, then all you have to do is lean on me. Because God always responds to weakness and need. But he is, in his holiness, repelled by self-assured pride. And so God is saying to Ahaz now, just as he says through Isaiah earlier, come, let us reason together. This is God moving toward Ahaz in spite of all of his wickedness in grace. Let us reason together. Trust me, this will not pass. Be firm in faith and you will be firm. But if you're not, you will not be firm at all. You will not stand. And so he tells him in verses 10 to 12 that I'm going to give you a sign. In fact, he says in verse 10, why don't you go ahead and tell me what kind of sign you like? Essentially, God hands Ahaz a blank check. But we see in the text that Ahaz refuses to cash it. He doesn't want to trust God. His heart has been hardened toward God. And of course, we see in the previous chapter, Isaiah 6, that that's exactly what the preaching of Isaiah intends to do. Holy, holy, holy God is making himself known through Isaiah to Ahaz. And he's doing so, so that he might further harden Isaiah's, or Ahaz's heart. And in so doing, fulfill all of his purposes, as we'll see in the following verses and chapters. But Ahaz's heart is being hardened. He says, ask me for a sign. But Ahaz says, no, I'm not really going to do that. After all, he says very piously, why would I put God to the test? We come up with all kinds of outward religious ways to not really trust God when he's calling us simply to trust him. But that's what Ahaz does. Far be it from me. I want to be a holy man. I'm not going to put God to the test, even though it's God himself from the mouth of his appointed prophet saying, tell me what kind of sign you want. Here's the blank check. Fill it out for whatever you want and cash it. He goes, I couldn't do that. Ahaz doesn't believe God. That here we see Israel's unbelief under the influence of Ahaz is being exposed. And so in verses 13 to 17, God says, fair enough. I'm going to go ahead and send a sign of my own. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you're not going to name it, here it is. Behold the virgin." will conceive and bear a son in his name and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. We're going to get to that in just a second. But we see in the following verses in 15 to 17 that Ahaz's belief is costly. Because what Ahaz is going to do is not trust God. He looks out there and he sees Syria and Israel uniting together and conspiring against him and against the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he starts looking around and he goes, who can I trust? Who can I align myself with to keep me safe from these invading forces right up against our border? I know what I'll do. I'll make a deal with Assyria. And that's what he does. He turns to Assyria to protect him against Israel and against Ephraim, against this alliance. And that's exactly what Assyria does. Assyria comes in and wipes all of them out. But by not trusting God and trusting in his own wisdom, by trusting in Assyria, Ahaz's plan backfires. So here Judah's belief has been exposed. That because of Ahaz's unbelief and his influence over the nation, the kingdom of Judah is going to be judged. And we see that beginning in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And who will it be? It will be the king of Assyria. The one that you've trusted is going to betray you and is going to ravage you 
because you chose not to lean on me, but to lean on your own understanding. Well, beginning in verse 18, going all the way through chapter 8, verse 8, that prophecy in verse 17 is going to be explained in detail. There in verses 18, all the way through the end of the chapter, we're going to see, first of all, a bleak future. Then in chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 8, we're going to see a backfired plan. All of this explaining what it is that was just spoken of in verse 17. Verses 18 and following, we're going to see a couple of things. I'm just going to breeze through it. But essentially, in summary, we're going to see that the land is going to be occupied and ruined, and its people are going to be humiliated and impoverished. You see, in that day, mentioned four times, there at the beginning of verse 18, at the beginning of verse 20, you see it again at the beginning of verse 21 and in verse 23. In that day, in that day, in that day, in that day, when the king of Assyria comes upon you, the land is going to go barren, it's going to be occupied, people are going to be impoverished, and they're going to be utterly humiliated. But secondly, Ahaz's plan in trusting in himself is going to backfire. We saw that hinted at in verse 17, but it's going to explain exactly how this is going to come about in chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it the common characters belonging to Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. What if you need to name your next kids Mahir Shalal Hashbaz? And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, many believed to be his wife. And she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Right there at the end of verse 4, it seems like Ahaz's plan is working. He's allied himself with Assyria. Assyria beats Israel, takes out Syria. Problem solved, right? Wrong. Reading on verses 5 through 7, in a painful act of hubris, that is pride before the fall, Assyria doesn't honor the agreement but just keeps on going. Its appetite cannot be satisfied. Turns on Ahaz, turns on Judah, and in verse 7, rises like a flood, spilling up over its banks, and it says, all the way up to the neck of Judah, verse 8. In other words, it's almost drowning and taking out all of the kingdom of Judah, but not quite all of them. Some will survive. Jerusalem will not yet fall, but Assyria is going to be a blight in the southern kingdom. Ahaz thought he was really smart. Isaiah came and gave him a word from the Lord. This is what God says. Are you going to trust his word? Isaiah says, or Ahaz says, no, I don't think so. That doesn't really look to me when I look at the political landscape. That, that's how this is working out. I'm better off just trusting my own political machinations. God says, okay, we'll see how that works out for you. Ahaz is feeling good. The northern alliance has been defeated. The alliance with Assyria seems to have paid off until Assyria turns his attention and nearly wipes out all of Judah. So the land of Assyria has flood into Emmanuel's land. Ahaz and Judah have been judged for their unbelief. But during this time, God said, I'm going to give a sign. And that sign will be a child born to a virgin, and his name will be Emmanuel. That word virgin, Alma, is also the word for a maiden. It can go either way, depending on the context. And he says, I'm going to give a sign, and you're going to know that judgment has come when this sign is fulfilled. But the question is, when is this sign fulfilled? Because if you look back at chapter 7... In verses 15 through 16, it looks like this sign, according to Isaiah, is going to be fulfilled in Isaiah's day. Notice here it says, 
He's going to eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Verse 16, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, that is before he grows up and matures, the land whose two kings you dread, that is the king of Israel and the king of Assyria, or Syria rather, will be deserted. They're going to be wiped out. I'm going to give you a sign that this boy is going to live and that boy will be a sign of the destruction of these two lands. And you'll know what I'm doing when you see this boy. Well, biblical prophecy is usually always fulfilled in what's called a type and a fulfillment. A type is something that always looks backwards or it's looking forwards, anticipating always something greater than itself. It's also referred to as a shadow and a substance. Well, here in chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, we see that Isaiah's prophecy links the birth of this boy historically to the alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria. Because when this boy is a child, both of these lands are going to be deserted. Now, some believe that the sign is fulfilled in Ahaz's son, the king Hezekiah. I think it's more likely not that it's Ahaz's son in whom it's fulfilled, but rather it's Isaiah's son. That is, back in chapter 8, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I want you to go back to chapter 8, and I just want you to consider this. Notice here that in verse 4, the birth of this child, before he ever grows up, this is what we saw, before he learns to discern good and evil, while he's still young, a baby, before he matures, that his birth, this birth of Isaiah's son, is tied to the alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Israel. The connection to chapter 7, verse 15, is 16 rather, is clear. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil, choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That's exactly what happens with Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It's unmistakable. And his name means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. That even in judgment, is God present with his people? The answer is yes. The land of Assyria will not ultimately overwhelm Emmanuel's land. And they may take counsel against God's people, but according to verse 10, it will not stand because God is with us. That there at the time, Isaiah's son is seen as a sign in his name, both of God's judgment and of his grace. And the message of his birth Hidden in his name is the message of God with us, that is, Emmanuel, that God is still faithful. And that's what we see in the message of Isaiah chapter 8, concluding there in verse 10. God is with us. This is Emmanuel's land, the land of Maher Shalal Hashbaz. This faithful son whose name is is in and of itself a message of God's faithfulness and providence and of presence with his people. But more importantly, whether it really is Maher Shalal Hashbaz or whether it's Hezekiah, more importantly, the sign of Emmanuel in chapter 7 prefigures the birth of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, he read the Old Testament with an eye to how all of its heroes and institutions and events all foreshadowed the coming Messiah. He saw in Isaiah's prophecy the Emmanuel sign, this, this child that, that serves as a sign, as a picture of our ultimate salvation. So you and I, we face powers greater than Syria and Ephraim, don't we? We face the alliance of sin and of death, and they never go away, and we are no match for them in our own strength and power. But at this ultimate level, Jesus is the fulfillment of the type. 
The judgment against sin and death is coming, and the spoils are coming to God's people. They are speeding upon us. They are, in a sense, to us, maher shalal hashbaz in Christ. Because he is God with us. He's the fulfillment of the type. He's the reality to the shadow. He fulfills the truest meaning of Emmanuel, that is God with us. And it's him, that is Christ, that ultimately becomes to us the gently flowing waters of Shiloh that we see there in verse 6. Those waters of Shiloh that flowed gently, that the people had rejected Well, he becomes those gently flowing waters and that all those who now stake their life on that supply will never thirst again, no matter how long or how hard we are under siege. The way that you and I experience the presence of God, of God with us, is to look at Jesus and know by faith he will be my fiercest ally. And I will conquer no matter what sin or death may threaten. Because he is Emmanuel. Judgment is coming to sin and death. All of the spoils of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are mine in Christ. Because he is fighting for me. Maher Shalal Hashbaz is mine. Sin will be judged. Death will be judged. The spoils will be ours in Christ because of Emmanuel. Merry Christmas. You can start listening to music on the way home now. That means that the way to experience the saving presence of God in your crisis right now, and I don't know what it may be for some of you, whether it's relational or financial, whether it's physical, having to do with your health or whatever it may be. But the way to experience the saving presence of God in your crisis right now is unlike Ahaz to say yes to the improbable ways of God. The first business of our lives is to learn what it means to stop trying to save ourselves like Ahaz and instead to venture all on God because he saves sinners and he fights for us. So believer, listen, whatever your crisis may be, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. God with us is more than just a name. He is a reality, and what more do you need? But if you're here this morning and you are perhaps visiting us and you're not a Christian and you don't really know what to think about all of this, about the Bible and about Jesus, you've got your doubts. You need to know that right now in the hearing of this word, God is speaking to you in the same way that he spoke to Ahaz and you have a choice. Are you going to trust God or will you reject him? Are you going to trust in your own wisdom and strength and brilliance like you have all the way up to this point in your life? How's that worked out? Or will you trust in the almighty God of Israel? Because he would say to you that as you look at Christ, if you will not be firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You will hardly stand in this day. And in that day, when you stand before me, you will not stand at all. Oh, friend, God is kind to give you that fork in the road. And one path is going to be really wide and really bright, and it's going to be paved with lots of good intentions and human brilliance and human wisdom, and it will lead to your destruction. But there is another path that is narrow and improbable and unthinkable. And it's one that you can't figure out in your own might and your own strength. It's one where you are going to have to trust God That he is God and you are not. And that his way is right. And that way is Christ alone. Will you today turn from trusting in yourself, just as we see with Ahaz, and will you trust in Christ?
Trust in Emmanuel, God with us. You need nothing more than Jesus. Well, we've seen here in this first part of our passage, the tragedy of unbelief. But now beginning in verse 9, all the way through chapter 9, verse 8, we're going to see the triumph of grace. That is the tragedy of unbelief giving way to the triumph of grace. And we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see at the end of verse 8, that is from or chapter 8, from verse 9 to the end of verse 22. You can see this in the outline on the back of your bulletin, that a remnant is set apart. And then you're going to see... There, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, that a ruler is given. A remnant is going to be set apart, and a ruler is given. Let's just keep on going here. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it'll come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Led by Ahaz, the people of Judah rejected God and God passed them by. But their unbelief in God did not defeat God. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful for he cannot deny himself. And God is not denying himself here. And so he sets apart a remnant for himself. He had already seen it in Isaiah's promise, chapter 1, verse 9. But God sets apart a remnant. And this remnant is going to be set apart by three things. First of all, we see in verses 9 and 10, it's set apart by the presence of God. That is God with us. That when Ahaz and his followers shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind, this faithful remnant stand with Isaiah in defiant confidence because they've experienced God with us. And this is true for all of those who have put their faith in Christ. Richard Williams was, was a young surgeon and a, he was a Methodist preacher. He coupled up with a man named Alan Gardner, who was an Anglican minister, and they set out with a group to be missionaries in Tierra del Fuego. And in 1851, their ship was forced to winter in a cold and bitter bay, and the supply vessel never arrived. Everyone on board died of cold and starvation. Nobody survived. But even as they were suffering, on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Richard Williams wrote this in his journal. Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel, that is a holy place. It is a very Bethel to our souls. And God we feel and know is here. Then on Wednesday, May 7th, just a few weeks later, he wrote, Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, he knew death was coming. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. What is it? that can make a man say something like that in those circumstances? And the answer is, Emmanuel, God with us. That God can take your greatest crisis and turn it into a Bethel, a holy place for your soul, because God will be with you. And this is the confidence of the stump. The true spiritual Israel, they have been set apart by the presence of God. But they're also set apart, secondly, by the fear of God. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 15. There in verses 11 to 12, if you, as you glance to that, we see that Isaiah tells God's faithful remnant not to fear what Ahaz and his people fear. No, you want to take a completely different approach. Because the faithful remnant, along with Isaiah, they see, verse 11, God's strong hand and all of the events swirling around them. And in fearing God and not fearing as Ahaz does, they stabilize themselves. But what does this fear look like? What's explained there in verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of armies, the one who fights for you, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. If God is God, then God is all that really matters. 
And this faithful remnant understands that. And they understand that how we treat God ultimately determines how we experience God. That He will either be to us a sanctuary or He will be to us a snare. And that's what we see in verse 14. That He will be a sanctuary, that is, to those faithful remnant. But to those who reject Him along with Ahaz, they will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, that is, to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The New Testament says that God is most unavoidable and He is most dangerous in Jesus. Jesus Himself says, Matthew 21, 44, that the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is, if you stumble on Christ and reject Him as Ahaz has rejected Him, it will lead to your destruction, but not so for the faithful remnant. They are stabilized by the knowledge of the holiness of God as we are in the revelation of God in Christ. Christ will not be a snare to the faithful. He is not a bill of goods. You will not be found that He is overpromised and underdelivered. He is not a snare to us. He is a sanctuary to us. He's a place of peace and of protection. And so the faithful remnant are not only set apart by the presence of God, but they're set apart by the fear of God. And thirdly and finally, they're set apart by the truth of God. Isaiah says in verse 16, bind up the testimony. He's saying, preserve this neglected wisdom, this, this wisdom that I'm proclaiming and that I'm preaching and that Ahaz and Judah have rejected in the hardness of their hearts. Bind it up, store it up, preserve it for a later generation who will listen. And in verse 17, we see that their trust in God's word, that is to be the source of their hope. That this testimony, the teachings of Isaiah, the very word of God to this people. They will be the source of their waiting for the Lord and ultimately at the end of 17 of their hoping in him. But their trust in God's word will not only be the source to their hope, verse 17. In verse 18, their trust in God's word will be a sign of judgment to those who refuse to trust God's word. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents. In Israel, from the Lord of hosts, were signs, were serving as, as signs of what God is doing. Of the Lord of hosts, the one who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they, that is Ahaz and Judah, that is those who are skeptical and unbelieving, when they say, don't trust the Lord, but inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? He says, trust God instead. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? What can they do? You inquire to the living God on behalf of the living, not the dead. So he says once again in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Why are these hypocrites, Ahaz and others, why don't they speak according to God's word? Why don't they believe God's word? And Isaiah explains, they have no dawn. There is no illumination. They are blind. Just as we read in the New Testament, the enemy of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They are blind in sin. They're in darkness. That all they'll see, verse 22, is the gloom of anguish. Oh, but for God's faithful remnant, who are set apart by His presence, who are set apart by the fear of God, and who are set apart by the truth of God, they will not experience the gloom of anguish, verse 22, but rather they will, beginning of chapter 9, experience the very absence of it. But there will be no gloom for her. So remnant has been set apart this is God's grace. He's not wiping them all out. He's preserving a seed, a stump. Though he has gone through the spiritual deforestation of Israel and of Judah, a stump remains of faithful believers who have trusted on the promises of God to be fulfilled in Christ. The true spiritual Israel, 
that is the church within physical Israel. That they believe upon God just as we believe upon God. And that is God's grace. To preserve a people according to His kindness and according to His promises. But not only that, we're going to see in in chapter 9 that a ruler is given. We're going to see, first of all, that light is going to overcome darkness. We're going to see, secondly, that joy is going to overcome gloom. And then we're going to see that peace is going to overcome oppression. This is going to be the sign of what this ruler does. You can follow along in the outline on the back of your bulletin if, you, if, that, if I went too fast. But notice, first of all, verses 1 and 2, light is going to overcome darkness. <clears throat> There's going to be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Galilee has been decimated by Assyria. What good could ever come from Galilee? Well, God is going to visit his people first where they had suffered the most. Where it seems like God's enemies were at their strongest, that is where God is going to enter in in victory. That is in Galilee of the nations. That essentially this faithful remnant, they're going to be trusting God and trusting God and trusting God in darkness. And then, boom, God says, let there be light. And that light is nothing less than the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says that he went throughout all of Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. The apostle Matthew, in recognizing that Jesus had come to Galilee and was preaching the gospel of good news, the very same gospel that Isaiah preached, he quotes Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2, and says that Jesus' ministry beginning in Galilee is a fulfillment of what Isaiah promised. That God is accomplishing everything that he said here in Christ. That's Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Because he is the light. Beginning of the gospel of John, in him was life and he was, and he was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sound familiar? That's very Isaiah 9-ish. And I think that's exactly what John intended. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I am the great light. I'm the light that is shining where there was only deep darkness. And so light overcomes darkness in Christ. But secondly, joy overcomes gloom in verse 3. He says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they're glad when they divide the spoil. That you at the beginning of verse 3 is speaking of God. And he says, God, you have multiplied the nation. That in Christ, God is spreading his light to more and more people. He's multiplying this small stump, this faithful remnant into a great multitude that nobody will be able to number from every tribe and every nation and every people and every language. And they will be corporately crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And their joy will only increase. Because in Christ, God is not only increasing our number, He is increasing our joy. That is like the joy of the harvest. He's comparing it to the joy of workers who at the end of harvest find out they just received a huge bonus on payday. They didn't deserve it, but they got it. And you're just going to rejoice. It's like when you go home during Christmas and if one of you finds out that that your employer gives you a big fat bonus that you weren't expecting, you're going to go hog wild or pay something off. But... You're going to rejoice. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. The wages that you received is what you earned. Everything over and above that is grace. How much more what Christ has done. He says it's also like dividing the spoil. Like soldiers dividing the spoil after emerging victorious from a grueling war. The triumph of God's grace over the gloom of our sin and of the curse of our deaths. 
only increases our joy, and that joy will only increase as the whole earth is filled with the glory of our holy God. That's what I say is preaching, and that's amazing. That we see that light in Christ overcomes darkness, and that joy is going to overcome gloom, and the source of that joy is going to come ultimately from his rule and the ending of all oppression. In verses 4 through 8, 4 through 7 rather. You notice there that there are, that word for is mentioned three times, giving a reason for the joy in verse 3. Beginning of verse 4, for the yoke of his burden. Beginning of verse 5, or verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 5, for every boot. Beginning of verse 6, for unto us. In every single one of these verses, he's explaining why there's so much joy in verse 3, and it has everything to do with this king, this ruler, this liberator who has come to fight for his people. He says in verse 4 that this liberator is going to defeat all of his enemies. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. He's going to defeat his enemies. He says the joy of victory is going to be like Midian's defeat when Gideon overcame the oppressive Midianite army without even a sword in his hand. That God is going to use, that God is going to use Gideon in such a way that the only one who will get any glory is God. That God is the liberator. And he says, it's going to be joy like that. I don't even know how it happened. They just started killing themselves. You can go back and read it. Judges 6 and 7. That'd be a good way to spend 30 minutes on a Sunday afternoon. He confuses them. And in the nighttime, they all just start killing themselves. And Gideon's just like, well, that was easy. Can you imagine then the joy that would have come from that? Not a single person lost. And he says, yeah, the joy of of our liberators, victory will be like that. And in verse 5, here's the reason, because he will end all conflict. He's just, just going to fight one war. He's going to end all wars. Ray Ortland Jr. put it this way, every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. We see a fulfillment of Isaiah's vision of Christ's kingdom in chapter 2. Do you remember it? You can glance back there, Isaiah chapter 2. That he, speaking of Christ, ruling from Mount Zion, will judge between nations and decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. He will end all conflict. And if you go back to verse 9, you notice there that, excuse me, that phrase, will be burned there at the end of verse 5, that's all in the passive voice. Our victory in verse 5 will not be our accomplishment. Like Gideon against the Midianites, all we do is step on the battlefield after the victory is won and celebrate because God has fought our battle for us. But who is this all-powerful liberator of verse 4 and verse 5? This all-powerful liberator and ruler striding across the world stage to, to judge the nations and end all wars we see in verse 6 that it's not who the world would expect. For to us a child is born and a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That he will establish peace without end. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized you is a baby. Against all of our expectations, we find the weakness of God overwhelming the power of man. And we find the foolishness of God overcoming the wisdom of men. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the good news of Christ, is improbable, but it's true. God doesn't need our strength and He doesn't need our brains. Not many of you were wise, brothers. Not many of you were strong. But God called you so that he might shame the wise and shame the strong so that Christ 
in God's electing grace would be to you justification, sanctification, and glorification. Therefore, brothers, if we are to boast, let us boast in Christ. He's all we've got. We got nothing else to boast in except for Jesus. Except for Jesus Christ crucified as the Savior and the King of the world. But just look at the second half of verse 6, the character of his reign. He uses a variety of different names. That as the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and his strategies are unassailable. We never have to doubt him and we can never second guess him. His approval rating will always be 100%. As the mighty God, he easily defeats his enemies. And because Christ is strong, then that means that you and I, well, we're free to be weak. That means no more swagger, no more puffing out our chests, because the all-powerful Son of God fights for us. As the everlasting Father, not speaking of God the Father, he's using imagery here. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. And his strength is always for us, never against us, even in disciplining us. And our job is to enjoy him. As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us to God when we were yet his enemies. We were set against him and he has forgiven us and purified us and reconciled us according to his shed blood on a cross and his victory over sin and raising from the dead. This is the king. This is the king who is light that will overcome darkness. He is the one who is the very source of joy that overcomes gloom. And he is the very peace that will overwhelm oppression. Jonathan Edwards says this, He is a king of the most unparalleled clemency and grace. Never was any kingdom ruled by any government so mild and gentle and gracious. He's exceedingly gracious in the manner of his ruling his people by sweetly and powerfully influencing their hearts by his grace. Not governing them against their wills, but powerfully inclining their wills. That Christ gives us new hearts with new desires, new wills that want to love him and obey him and follow him because he's gracious. And we see that this peace that has overcome oppression, this peace in verse 7, it is a peace that will last forever. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This child is the king to end all kings, saving every single one of us by his grace through faith alone from our Ahaz-like failures and lifting us into his own justice and his own righteousness. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord our crucified, risen, reigning, and coming Savior. And He's not going to come back just to make a few tweaks. He will return with a massive correction program whereby He will correct all personal evil and all systemic injustice forever. He will make all things new. And here's the best part that it is of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Christ's empire of grace will forever expand. It will be infinitely increasing. The glory of the Holy, Holy, Holy One will fill the earth and the faithful remnant who do not reject his grace as Ahaz did, but receive his grace by faith as Isaiah did, will be there to enjoy his triumph, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. And there will never come one moment when we all say, this must be the limit. He can't possibly think of everything new. We have seen it all. That will never happen because his increase is infinite. No, it will only be endlessly increasing. That in the presence of Christ, every new moment will be better than the last. 
and it will never end. And notice who does this in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Our job is to give witness and to celebrate. God will do it. If you're given a choice between trusting God and trusting yourself, trust God. He wins in the end. How might we apply this to our lives? First of all, believer, you need to take confidence that in Christ, His victory over your sin is total and complete. He has taken away the sins of the world that is all who repent and trust in Him. And that gives us cause to rejoice. And though we may mourn temporarily at the presence of sin and the reality of suffering, just as we sung in those middle two songs today, we ultimately, all of our mourning gives way to rejoicing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in Christ. There is, if you are in Christ, not one ounce of your sin that you have, will, that you have are, or will commit that has not been paid for in full. Your standing before God cannot be compromised. It cannot be undermined. That he will not renege on his word. He will not grow tired of you. He will not grow weary of you. And when you come to him in prayer, he will not go, uh, you again? All of your victory over sin is total and complete. The way to God through Christ has been open and will never shut for you. And you have full and unfettered access to the throne of grace in your time of need. And he will never turn you away because of Christ. Do you believe that? Or are you still busy trying to dig yourself out of the holes that you've created? Do you believe that? Or are you still busy trying to tip the scales of justice and going, well, all these things that I've done, I've just got to try to make it all right. Friend, that wide path will only lead to destruction. But Christ, the narrow path, He will be your righteousness. He will be your justice. He will be your justification, that is your right legal standing before God, and you do nothing but trust Him and celebrate His grace. Secondly, you and I would be well served to meditate on the titles of Christ that we see in Isaiah 9. We should get to know them in such a way that as we disciple one another, that we are equipped to point others to Jesus in lots of different ways, in lots of different circumstances. That when you're sitting across from someone, having coffee or having them over for dinner or talking with them on the phone or whatever it may be, and they go, I'm just so lacking wisdom, I don't know what to do. You can say, let's go to Christ. He is our wonderful counselor. When you're feeling weak and weary from fighting what seems to be a losing battle against your own sin, oh, you tell yourself or you look to your brother and sister and you say, let's go to Christ. We may be weak, but he is our mighty God. When you're feeling full of self-pity and self-loathing and doubt, let us look to one another and say, let's go to Christ. Who not only loves us with the strong and the tender love of a father to a, to a child, but that he is our everlasting father. His love for us is inexhaustible. Nothing, nothing burns away self-pity like the love of Christ. The infinite, inexhaustible, indefatigable, indestructible love of Christ. Are you feeling anxious? Got that pit in your stomach? Are you staying up at night thinking about all the things you wish that you could control in your life but can't? Let's rest in Christ. He is our Prince of Peace. That we look to one another and our discipleship of one another and we go, oh, let's just stop right now. And let's just not, let's not talk about our circumstances. Let's lift our eyes over our circumstances and let's make our requests known to him, knowing that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. 
Oh, friends, if we're going to grow in effectiveness and discipleship, we've got to learn to lead one another to Christ in lots of different ways for all of the different circumstances that we find ourselves in. And Isaiah 9 would be a really good place to start. Finally, you and I need to be faithful to share the gospel with others. The faithful remnant led by Isaiah is not afraid to bind up and to go to the testimony. They were not afraid to speak the word of God, though the world may reject the word of God, because this is the appointed means whereby God will multiply the nation. Yes, God has chosen a people for himself, Romans 9, that's the end. But Romans 10 goes alongside Romans 9, and the preaching of the word of God is the means whereby God accomplishes all of his ends. You should be inviting your non-Christian friends to gather with our church to hear the gospel sung and preached. You should be engaging, even if you don't have the right inroad in the conversation. You're just kind of looking for that transition point. Trust me, if you speak the name of Jesus, it'll change the conversation. You just got to put it out there. And we do so trusting that this is the means whereby God does all of the heavy lifting. In other words, you're just the one. That's a bad illustration. I'm not going there. That our job is to be faithful and telling people about this glorious ruler, about how he is overcoming darkness with light, gloom with joy, oppression with peace. Greatest news that we know, the news that we rejoice in and exult in and can't wait to tell others about and have conversations about, even when they reject us. And all the while trusting that that is the very message that God uses to multiply the nation for his glory to fill the earth. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's why blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Let us be those who, like Isaiah and like this faithful remnant, would make Christ known, would bind up the testimonies, and we would run to the testimonies that God's word would be our confidence. Pray with me.